standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 277 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have a new alarm clock. I'm going to guess it's like a biological thing rather than a piece of technology, right? It's a very furry, cute alarm clock that at about quarter to five, quarter past five every morning starts punching me in the face with a little (laughs) paw. Then if I don't respond or I, I brush the alarm clock off, it just starts chewing on my chin and purring really, really loudly. Well, you married him. I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he thinks the purring's going to mean that there's no divorce, but I'll tell you. <laughs> no, it's not Gary. It's Mr. Trousers, who has decided that that is cuddle time. And if I don't respond immediately, he, he I'd never seen a cat punch before, but he literally punches me in the face. That's kind of adorable. I've seen a cat punch before. Joan literally punched a cat that came through our cat flap <laughs> in the face. She was standing there. She could obviously smell it. And she was standing there. And as it came through, she just, yeah, punched is all I can describe it as. Amazing. Frank used to wake me up in the morning by putting his paw over my eye and then just pressing down. <laughs> and if I was lucky, it woke me quite quickly. And if I was unlucky, I would wake and think, I've had a stroke. I can't. Like the whole <laughs> Everything in the room is just moving around and, yeah, bless him. Yeah. He's also taken to boxing my ears. What's going on? He's five months old and he's a little furry dictator. Yeah, I mean, I thought you were going to say dick and you could have just stopped there, couldn't you? (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've just come back from an unexpected heatwave and not an internal one either, coming from the outside. Where have you been? I went to Romania, where it is traditionally quite cold in October, the end of October we're at now, and it was 28 degrees. Wowzers. Yeah. That is sweaty. I had checked the weather about a week before I packed, so they didn't check again. And I'd actually fortunately taken a thermal vest to wear under my clothes in case it was (laughs) really cold. And then I just basically spent three days in that because everything else was too hot. It was too hot anyway it's lovely people should go brass off it's really nice i've been there i went like 30 years ago and then i went back again yeah it's really pretty and autumn nice time to go because you know browns and yellows and 28 degrees 28 yeah balmy 28 degrees i can't guarantee (laughs) it will be like that if you go in october but all i will say is pack some emergency vests just in case Coming up, I get on the Zoom with playwright Sadie Hasler to talk about her new thriller, Killing Jack, in which she explores women reclaiming the streets today while honouring the lives of Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Catherine and Mary Jane, the women killed by Jack the Ripper. She's a good egg, Sadie. She is. Jen chats to director Rosie Morris, whose documentary short, My Blonde GF, tells the story of Helen Mort, a woman whose life was turned upside down when she discovered she'd been the victim of deep fake pornography. And you made me feel like dancing. Uh, Who does? Well, certainly not young man Julian Craster. He's not young! (laughs) Find out what we're blathering on about as Powell and Pressburger classic The Red Shoes gets rated or dated. I'm joined by Rosie Morris, director of the short film My Blonde GF. Hello, Rosie. Thank you very much for joining me today. 
Hello. <laughs> nice to be here. Rosie, can you tell us a little bit about the film, please? Yeah, so the film, which is launching online on The Guardian later this month, is about a woman called Helen, who's like a, a really amazing poet and writer. And she found out that somebody had collected loads of images of her from the internet and uploaded them onto a porn site. And the film's about the kind of psychological and emotional impact that experience had on her life. So these photos, to be clear, these are deep fake images, right? So they have taken photos of her from, she thinks, her old Facebook account. And then they have superimposed her head, her face, onto pornographic images, right? So these aren't like, you know, real images, as it were. This is a, this is deep fake i wanted to ask you first of all what brought you to this subject matter because it's quite dark isn't it yeah yeah it's not a comedy this (laughs) one um so i made a film called heart eyes in a world when i was at film school which was about looking like really specifically at the way that four 15 year old girls were interacting with social media and what i was interested in was this generation that have never known anything else and I kind of learned quite a lot about what it feels like for them to have this kind of audience like be living with this kind of audience Mm. I guess what I'm interested in is that we kind of have to participate in this stuff whether we like it or not if you didn't have social media I could still probably google you and find some images because Mm. of work or how we live our lives online. And I was thinking about trying to find a story that was specifically for like my generation of half my life with social media, half my life without it. So thinking about the impact that Facebook had when it first Mm. landed in our lives. I was like 19 when it landed in my life. And I was looking for stories around revenge porn and deepfakes because I read that during the lockdown, there was a massive surge in deepfakes and revenge porn. And I thought, what a dark symptom of isolation, basically. Yeah, so then I found Helen's story on the BBC News. She'd spoken out about it. That was like what she wanted to do. And then I sent her a message on Twitter and like, sent her my film my teenage girls film and said would you be up for a chat and she was so I think I wanted to think about the where the images go that's that's basically what it is is like thinking about the teenage girls that are sharing all of these images of themselves what I became really aware of is that they think about who they do want to see them and they don't think about who they don't want to see them and it's like what happens to images when you put them out you no longer own them And I thought what was really specifically interesting about Helen's story is that the images were no longer of her, you know, like they'd been manipulated. In some cases, they hadn't been manipulated. They just put text next to them and it kind of like recontextualized the image. Why Helen's story is interesting, I guess, I think it's got a sort of philosophical questions around it because she no longer feels the same about the original images now that she's seen them in this new context. So that makes me really kind of start thinking about like memory and how you can like almost like alter somebody's memories Mm. through something like this. 
Yeah, well, you can, can't you? Because you can. You, I think you know. I, I was talking about it with someone the other day. Like, I don't know if I actually remember this thing from my childhood, or if I've just yeah. seen pictures of it. And so I think I remember it. So yeah, it, photos and images literally can sort of impact on your memory, right? So much so. And like, I've always thought that was really interesting about the relationship between image and memory and how hard they are to extrapolate. When mm, you, yeah. Like, it's really hard to separate a memory from an image. And the reason that we chose to look at it in this way, so it focuses completely on her, the psychological experience for her and how it unfolded in her life in quite unexpected ways, I think. It it sort of revealed itself quite slowly, how it impacted her. And I didn't want to give much space to, like, the intentions of the person that did it or the investigative part of... I didn't want to do something investigative around that. I just wanted to sort of... I felt like if you tried to walk alongside her in that experience, you'll understand why people need protection around this kind of thing so it's interesting to me that you said like what a funny symptom of isolation i think there's a misconception that deep fake porn is either like a revenge porn so someone's done it as a sort of malicious act against someone or that it's something that weird people do in their basement when they're sort of fantasizing about celebrities but there's sort of actual industry here right so people will be doing this for financial gain as as well as <laughs> those those myriad awful and bemusing reasons, right? You know, I think that one of the reasons I wanted to tell this story as well is that I think people do think that, like, deep fakes are for celebrities or for political purposes. And actually, so the statistic that we found that we kind of, like, used, you know, as part of our process was that 96% of deep fakes and non-consensual porn featuring women mm-hmm. we have that at the end of the film and i think like that really kind of shines a light on the fact that you know it's not like political videos necessarily it's mm-hmm. like much more pervasive than that i mean i actually don't go because the film doesn't go there in terms of the mechanics of all of that mm. uh and I don't like go there in my head too much about those websites. I just kind of like wanted to keep the whole thing about the impact o- on her mm-hmm. and how claustrophobic that was, how paranoid it made her feel. But yeah, there's a whole world going on around this. And we live in a culture where we're saturated by images all the time Mm. I think part of my interest in this was about what's happened to like the meaning of an image Mm. you know like the opportunity that you had you know like what you were saying about childhood photos like I still love to get out a box of photos and look through them and it's like this amazing container of memories Um, and now we just sort of we're looking at the past all the time like the recent past and the distant past on our phones Mm. And just like sharing those images with anybody. And I guess I'm just sort of thinking, what does that mean in the bigger picture? And like, where do these images go? We do have a very strange relationship with 
images and photography now, don't we? Because as you said, like I remember back in the day, like I was always someone who took photos. I had like my little, um, you know, yeah. 35 millimeter camera before it turned into those funny cartridge things and before yeah. it turned into, you know, like the memory cards, digital cameras. And now obviously no one even has a proper camera anymore. Everyone just uses their phones. But like it used to be like a real event like you'd get your little film you'd take it to boots or whatever it would be developed and you'd get like your hard photos back and so you know we have a couple of shoe boxes of of old photos of us as children and and my daughter won't have that which is weird so it's all yeah online now and it does become a bit meaningless in a way right it's quite I don't know is it symptomatic of a quite sort of disposable culture do you think there's something about that going on isn't there like that makes me really sad the thought of not mm. having those boxes of photos like I remember getting a camera when my parents separated when I was a kid and wanting to take photos of everything I did when I was with one parent so that I could like show the other parent <laughs> and it was like part of a sort of therapeutic thing, I guess, you know, and like how meaningful it can be to take a picture that captures a moment. What that really means has just become like, yeah, like throwaway and it's more important to like show it to a wider audience than it is to like keep it for yourself, I guess. Yeah, I suppose it's also like our obsession with the self, right? Exactly. And like, I suppose... There's like another thing, like the way that we take pictures has changed because it's all like, you know, it's mm. like... Yeah, yeah, the overhead duck face shot and the and the filters and the blah, blah, blah. But I noticed as well, professional photographers now, or like you get, you know, sort of like reality documentaries. I don't know. I don't know. They're not reality documentaries. Made in Chelsea, for example, whatever. There's like a filter that's yeah. used to give people like a slightly different you know sort of almost like an instagram aesthetic right so we're so used to seeing these filters on instagram photos that now we expect like professional photographers who take pictures of weddings or whatever to put these filters on and the point of a filter is actually like basically because if i take some photos of my own face it looks shit because i'm not a professional photographer right so it's to basically mask that you're not very good at taking a photo or to put you in a more flattering light because you know, we don't go around with like brilliantly lit all the time. Isn't that mad that we expect the aesthetic of things now to be, yeah. it's, it's almost like on the X Factor when the kids started singing like they were auto-tuned because they're so used to hearing auto-tune on everything. That's what they think a yeah. voice sounds like. So that's yeah. what they try to sort of emulate. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. This kind of disconnection from... Mm human like what what, I didn't know about that thing that you just said that sounds really fascinating about the voice I mean I I think they did actually also auto-tune the kids a bit but I do I I remember being like oh you sound because that's what they try to emulate because it's it's like girls doing their makeup like the Kardashians faces yeah because that's what they think a face looks like that's what they think a beautiful face looks like yeah a face that has been massively enhanced by surgery so it's all about trying to emulate these things that don't yeah. actually reflect reality, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this like disconnection 
which relates to like what what I was thinking about with the teenage girls that were using social media and like you get really nasty comments on there. I was thinking about how like you learn empathy through interactions with other human beings mm. and how you, you learn how your behavior like affects somebody else. And what's happening is this like disconnection. So people can say really nasty things and it just goes out into the ether and you don't have to live with the re- reaction. You know, you can just hurt somebody from a distance. And like that sort of has that same thing of this culture that we live in that's sort of quite disconnected from humanness, like human being. And, you know, what happened to Helen was this process of like, disembodiment you know it could be anybody it could be any face let's just play around with this in whatever Mm. way we want this wasn't like high-tech deep fake this is like someone in their bedroom this is photoshop basically Mm. but the deep fake the term deep fake refers to the kind of intention behind the image so it's like okay that's interesting yeah yeah it's like creating a realistic fake image with the intent to harm. There's a programme on TV recently, I noticed. I think it was on like ITV4 or some shit, but, but at like 11 o'clock at night. But there were adverts for it on ITV, which is how I knew about it. Like the whole thing was basically they're like creating scenes using the face of like Kim Kardashian and Kanye West and, you know, it, whatever other famous people. And they were using images of them and creating like fictional sequences and that was on tv and i was just like i don't i'd even question like the legality of that like how many disclaimers do you have to put on something like that to not get sued it just and it just struck me as such a weird thing to want to do but i guess like is it the same as spitting image i don't i don't know yeah, that's interesting because I miss spitting image. I wish that was still around. Like, I wish it wasn't I... shit now is what I wish. Like, it yeah. used to be yeah. good. Yeah. But yeah. Um... Yeah. The one that we watched with mm. Margaret, that, yeah, like, yeah. That's, what, that's what we want. Yeah, I don't think it's the same as that. Like, I don't know. It's like if your face, and even Kardashian, it's like if your face is not your sort of property in some way, then what is like that just seems so wild doesn't it and like I think that's the scary thing it's like the idea that you share images which we all do which I do you know it's not like I don't think we should do it I'm just sort of trying to ask questions about the culture I think because the idea that you share an image and then it's no longer yours and anybody can do whatever they want with it seems like quite a bad situation isn't it (laughs) I would say so (laughs) Okay. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Helen because your film, as you've said, like you haven't sort of gone too much into the, you know, the industry of it or, or, or whatever, but like, your film is very much victim focused rather than on the perpetrator. I wonder yeah. if you could tell me a little bit about the impact of this, because I think that there would be a temptation to maybe kind of brush it off and go, well, it's not real. So like, what's what's the problem? Like, you can just be like, well, that isn't me, you know. Yeah. But But Helen has been like very deeply affected, hasn't she? Yeah, and she's also like a really extraordinary like thinker, Helen. So she's sort of, she was amazing to work with on this because she's really trying to understand how this has impacted her and like find a way to articulate that. 
because I th- I think even her her first reaction was like you know it's like really horrific and then I think she did have a sort of okay well you know they're not real like maybe I shouldn't feel like this I think she's you know she said she sort of talks about that in the film a bit and then actually it was like as time went on if you think about what an invasion it is it kind of slowly started to really reveal itself that it, it, it had she has seen herself in a way that is really difficult to unsee basically mm. and think about how we're talking we're saying we can't extract images and memory it's almost like having a memory planted because it's like you've seen yourself in a way it's definitely mm. you like that's your eyes that's your face that's your recognizable part and you've seen yourself and these images are violent images yeah. So it's re- it is really disturbing, and I think it's part of her process was to talk about it and find ways to articulate it because even the law is you know the law's not protecting victims. So mm. part of the process for her was finding a way of articulating it so that people don't go, well, it's not a real image. What's the problem? You know, so that they go, oh, actually, that does that sounds like that that could have a really huge impact on a person. Mm. I was. Uh, it was about five years ago now, it's before I had my daughter. I was a victim of image based sexual assault, as they say. Basically, a guy that I was seeing took some videos of me without my knowledge, and then I found out about it when he basically like sent me a screenshot of a gallery of all of these videos that I didn't know that he'd taken. Obviously, I was upset initially and then i did like did a bit of digging and i found out that this guy is a fucking wrong oh my god i decided to look at it as in okay well this is like objectively bad because i don't know what he's done with these images although because i actually you know got the police involved he'd be a fucking idiot if he did anything you know yeah properly bad with them but i just sort of decided to be like well they're just my tits it's just my ass do you know what I mean like it's not it's not the end of the world like I I decided to take the power away from him by being like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be too bothered about this but I mean obviously you do have moments where you're like what what's he done with that I don't know yeah but also like for me like him screen grabbing that Mm. gallery there's a power play isn't it like it's I've got something of you yeah I've got it and I I've what the power what a nasty move yeah he's a nasty guy what you know they walk among us don't yeah. they unfortunately yeah. but yeah. yeah so i find it like i do find it i find it really interesting to think about yeah the impact of these things on people because obviously i i, I mean i think like i had to do that for my own self protection do you know what i mean like for my own sanity i had to look at it that way because if i didn't i'd just be like what the fuck what the fuck what the fuck where is that what's you know blah 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 and i have yeah. no control over it so it's just not worth it well it's all about control isn't it mm. it's all about control and like i think for helen you know she talks about that in the film as well that like in the way that becomes almost like a boundary to go mm. i will not be i will not be driven mad by this i will not spend my life trying to work out who did it because mm. in a way I think anyone could have done it mm. and I think that's kind of the point 
it could be anyone. It could be, you know, what you've described, you know, you don't know what they're going to do with that stuff, but mm. you know that it's there. But even that, having to, it's just like this deep-rooted misogyny, isn't, isn't mm. it? Even the fact that you have to go, oh, it's just this, it's just like, that's that's like a good boundary because you need to hold on to yourself in, in that situation. But it's all about control. It's all mm. about like, I think there's something about this story and it's just heard it in what you've just said. It's this desire to render somebody powerless. Yeah. And it's so deep rooted and so dark that I got quite interested in like, there was also a surge in the lockdown of drink spiking or after lockdown. Yeah. Yes, there Never. was, wasn't there? There was a, there was like a yeah. really big thing. Yeah, I remember that now. Yeah. Awful people getting injected and stuff with, things and but what drives that then is that is that for a lack of you know because that's mad isn't it you said there's this spike of like spiking and then there's a spike of image-based sexual assault in you know various different ways yeah the need is to control people to have power over someone is that a symptom of feeling powerless in your own life it's like what what do, yeah maybe it's fascinating isn't it quite interesting it's like where's that coming from that desire to to render somebody completely powerless and do whatever you want and like it's like again and again it's like women that get are, are on the response of that. but again i was thinking as we were chatting about that you know you said that well that my reaction was interesting whatever but then that's women isn't it we're taught to minimize things we're taught to, because if we didn't we endure so much shit as women because of you know misogyny pervasive you know endemic whatever you want to call it like misogyny that we have to minimize stuff for our own sanity because if we didn't like why you know how would we get out of bed in the morning frankly yeah and I think there's something about like our endeavor to like help Helen tell this story because I realized she's gone right I'm going to talk about it I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stay quiet on this then she's putting so much energy into campaigning around the issue. And that's actually like a huge deal to do that kind of thing. And I think when I spoke to her first, I thought we sh- we could probably help tell this story in a way where we're carrying some of that burden a bit and we can use it. You know, The Guardian's a really good platform. We we can do screenings. We can talk about the issue. And just so that she's not kind of on her own doing that, we can help her do that. And I feel like film has that amazing capacity to Mm. show you the experience in a way that you can't communicate through words or it's not an intellectual thing. It's like an emotional thing. Mm. So hopefully it, it, it does do that for her. Yeah. Hopefully it does. So the film, My Blonde GF, you're doing some screenings of it at the moment and the film is, as you said, launching on the Guardian website, right? So is that the best place for people to watch it? Yeah, that will be, because that's a global platform so you can watch it from anywhere and it will be sometime later this month. So keep your eyes peeled for that. What is next for you? You're making a fascinating film with the University of Essex about the Greenstead estate in Colchester, which is my ends, as the kids say. Uh, It's not really my ends, it's sort of local-ish. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so well, I'm editing 
that at the moment with your good friend Vera, who mm-hmm. edited my blonde GF. She brings me his... all the good guests on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because she edited Phantom Parrot as well. She She's did, an amazing yeah, yeah. documentary editor. And the film is about, it's called This Moment and the Next. And it's basically about this moment in time on the Greased Estate in Colchester. And it's sort of showing in an observational way what people's lives are like and how people come together and kind of look after each other at this time of national economic crisis. Crazy. I could talk to you about this stuff for hours and hours and hours, but we've all got lives to lead. Uh, so, <laughs> so where can we follow you on the socials, as they say, to keep up to date with what, what you're doing next? After all that social media chat, I yeah. do use Instagram for keeping updated on film stuff. And it's at Rose S. Morris. Rosie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was really nice to chat to you. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by playwright and, full disclosure, my lovely pal, Sadie Hasler. (laughs) Sadie, hello. Hello. It's lovely to see your face. It's so nice to see your face, even if it's only on Zoom, so I can't cover it in kisses. (laughs) Yeah, uh, so from like smooches to uh, Jack the Ripper. Let's go. Yeah, let's go straight in. Your new play is called Killing Jack, and there's a reason it's on around Halloween. Tell us a bit about it. I was commissioned to write a thriller, which was the first stage. You know, my brain went off down into the dark depths and thought, right, what what do I want to write about that's slightly uh, thrillery? And then I realised, do I actually know what a thriller is? Because I've never written a thriller before. So I basically just thought, what would I want to see if I went to see a thriller? And then around the same time, I was doing loads of nerdy research into my, my family tree. I found loads of really interesting people, but one of the women that I found was my great, great, great grandmother, Julia Hasler, who lived in the East End, was super poor, in and out of workhouses, illegitimate children and suspected prostitute. Just things that made you made you just think, oh my God, fucking hell, that's in me. And then you just feel, I don't know, just like this mass empathy for this woman you, you don't know, but that is part of you. And so I started looking into the East End of the time and all that sort of stuff and, you know, what life was like for poor women. And around the same time, I started thinking about Jack the Ripper because she was living in those streets in the East End the year that Jack the Ripper was active. And, yeah, and I just thought, God, if she was out and about late at night as a woman seeking all sorts of work, you know, she could have very well been near him, you know. Anyway, so that that sent me spiralling. And then I thought, well... I realised I knew nothing about the women that were murdered by Jack the Ripper. Then did a load of research and realised, obviously, they weren't all prostitutes. That's just a horrible, horrible truth that we all just accept without Uh interrogating. So it's kind of like, you know, my little search for my family history, world around the dark history of the East End of the time. And then my brain just went bonkers and thought, right, well, I want to tell the story of these women and not Jack. He can fuck off. He can fuck off. Yeah, Jack can fuck off. He's had a lot of attention over the years. Too much attention. And also, like, we don't know who the fuck he was. We're never going to know who he is. So why do we care? Let's focus on the women. 
And so what is the plot structure? Because some of it is exploring the lives of these women in 1888, but some of it is set in modern day Britain, right? Yeah, so it's gone through so so many different drafts and, and sort of versions of what the play could be. There did used to be an 1888 storyline where I had a fictional character, Julia Hasler, on the streets of the East End with the women that did exist. And then the more I started going into it, I realised actually as much as I want to bring that 1888 to life, the, the thing that I think is more important to investigate is what has changed since then mm-hmm. and what has changed for women. Are we any safer on the streets and all of that sort of stuff? So I kind of, just out of sheer necessity and not being able to write a five-hour-long play, <laughs> which right, I totally do, and have, <laughs> like, yeah, I just realised I had to really pick the strands that I thought that would feel really contemporary and relevant. And so there is no 1888 storyline. Right. It's all set, Whitechapel 2023. And the women from 1888, Polly, Annie, Liz, Kate and Mary Jane, they threw a spooky, that's where the thriller comes in and the Halloween comes in, spooky glit energy that surges between all women and in all times. That sort of shared collective energy and rage yep. reawakens them. And they're awake in Whitechapel 2023 on Halloween, on the night a girl dies on the streets. And you're right, there is that collective energy that I guess we'd we'd call it a feminist rage now. But obviously that word has been through many machinations and we couldn't apply it to to the women then because they weren't applying it to themselves. It's really interesting when you were talking about Julia and what she may or may not have done and also what has been said about Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Catherine and Mary Jane and has just been yeah. accepted as wrote that they would be prostitutes. It's yeah. because, like, even if they were, there was so little choice for women who were poor, right? Like, if you weren't attached exactly. to a husband or a man, then y- you were probably going to starve. It, yeah. It's tough now. It was much, much tougher then, I think. Yeah. And I think now we have to have a little loving for the excellent Hallie Rubenhold and her brilliant oh my book, goodness. The Five, about those women... Oh killed by Jack the Ripper. It's incredible. I, I read so much stuff that was written by men, you know, and the Ripperologists and the, and the you know, self-proclaimed authorities on, on Jack the Ripper and the cases. And, you know, for for, for a good while, it, it was fascinating, just while you're kind of assimilating the story and the, and the facts and the theories. Then I found the five and I just stopped reading anything by anyone else. <laughs> yeah. And, and also I realised reading it, I already knew that I wanted to tell the, the women's stories, but I didn't realise how little I cared about who the fuck he was. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter. It it's doesn't matter. so irrelevant. It's just a, it's just a man who killed women, and you know, it's no fucking surprise, is it? Absolutely, it's unfortunately. So yeah, so Hallie, Hallie's book, which is just the, one of the most incredibly researched and mammoth acts of empathy. Yes. Is just yeah. I I I I will be telling everyone, <laughs> everyone to read it. Yeah, because it's just incredible. Oh, yeah. we love her. Any excuse to talk to Hallie. I talked to her about how she dries her towels. She's amazing. She yeah. just <laughs> she knows <laughs> so much. She's incredible, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. I know Hallie gets constant nonsense. Some of it's nasty as fuck from the so-called ripperologist, which you've just mentioned. Yeah. Are you ready? Oh yeah, fucking ready. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I will get even 0.5% of the attention that Hallie has got from her book. But if anyone does uh, come and 
want to have a discussion about the feminist agenda or women are contriving the fact to suit their own feminist agenda and, and all of the stuff that gets held at her, then yeah, I'm ready, mate. Here In fact, is. I did talk to a journalist the other day <laughs> and um, I answered some questions. One of the questions was about the accepted narrative around the women and everything and, and the ripperologist. And I basically said, I've done so much reading and I'm so angry about so many things that if anyone does come up and have a conversation, I am at the theatre, do come and have a chat. I'm ready for you, mate. <laughs> Funnily enough, she didn't print that bit. So. Well, it stayed in this <laughs> chat, that's for sure. Because, Sadie, I mean, it's puzzling, isn't it? Why are all these men so obsessed with the man who got away with torturing and murdering women? I don't know. It's so weird, isn't it? But, oh, you know, on the other side of that, I mean, I do understand why humans, especially men, because, you know, if you look back through history, they certain kinds of men cast themselves in this sort of like saviour role solving a crime becomes a part of that you know mm-hmm. fi- finding the truth and, and everything I don't buy that the men who are involved in the Ripper case are really doing it for good reasons I think some might be but not not all but also on the other side of it women why are we so fascinated with horror and serial killers you know so much it's it's such True a crime. large yeah. True crime, large proportion of women who are the people that are, you know, chomping it all up. They might not be creating as much as men historically. They might not be writing the story. I mean, so much, so much of the Ripper stuff that I saw, you know, the films that have been made and the books that have been written is just such a fucking sausage fest. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> yeah. But we enjoy it. So the play kind of investigates that as well as, you know, what is it in us that is drawn to that? Is it just because we want to understand? Yeah, and maybe if we understand, we'll know ways to keep ourselves safe. Exactly. Which obviously doesn't yeah. apply if someone, if a bloke wants to hurt you, they're going to yeah. hurt you. But I feel like if we yeah. feel like we're armed with, well, I wouldn't do that or I wouldn't get myself in that situation or I would know, then we, we yeah. feel a little bit protected, albeit we're yeah. not protected. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't, right? You want to understand the risks. Oh, yeah, it's horrible. It's been a big old year of having to just think about that constantly. Yeah, I mean, and it's not like you have to delve into the past to have to think about that constantly because what you've done here and what is it's really important and really relevant is you've taken the stories of these women to, you know, quite rightly give them some space and honour their lives, but also to look at class and privilege yeah. and how they contributed to the safety or in fact the, the lack of safety for women then and how that has not changed today. Yeah. Oh, it's just depressing because in writing, you know, trying to figure out certain things with the characters and the storyline, I I was constantly thinking, well, what is the answer? What is the ideal answer? What do we do? How do we tackle it? How do we keep ourselves safe? Should we be, you know, altering our behaviour? Should we be staying out late at night? All of those things, and that's the awful thing, isn't it? There is no big answer to keep us safe. It's just, you know, I know, stick together, which is kind of one of the points of the play. And, yeah, I don't know. I wanted answers, Sadie. Come on now. Oh, babe. Well, do you know what? I I did try and think, because there is like an activist element in the play. When the women come together and ask these questions, you know, what can we do? And obviously there is, is that sort of perhaps predictable part when they realise they are stronger together I did think about right how do, well, how do I end this streak of activism in a satisfying way that makes people think 
this is what we should be doing. It's not the full answer. It's not going to fix everything. But this is definitely something we can be doing and we can be doing together. So that, that I won't I won't go into it. But yeah, I do try and bring elements together at the end of the play that hopefully suggests some outcomes. Okay, that's good. I think it's really interesting as well. When this topic comes up, there's a lot of, and you know, I agree with both sides of this, there's a lot of women shouldn't have to do anything. It's the onus on men not to rape, not to murder, not to attack us. Absolutely agree. But at the same time, if there is stuff that we can do that even just makes us feel safer, then I think we should be doing it. And I don't think that's victim blaming. But there's a real dichotomy of views on this, as with everything. Like it's a black and white topic. Whereas, you know, like staying together, like talking to other women, like making sure that you've got shoes you can run in. You shouldn't have to, but if it's helpful... I mean, fuck me, that's just depressing, isn't it? Yeah. Don't wear heels and keep your keys in your hand. It's it's just, yeah, it's really depressing. But that is just the nature of it. You know, and I, I was looking back through uh, like the history of female activism, going back to the you know the Yorkshire Ripper and their protests on the street, you know, yeah. reclaim the nights. And, you know, the whole notion of men having a curfew yes. just kept coming back. Because yep. it's like, what can we do that is actually practical and... A curfew on. Yeah. They're not up for it, though, to be honest. They're not up for it, Sadie. <laughs> I mean, it's not a great answer. But, yeah, other than educating boys from a very young age better how to respect women and getting them to look at all the problematic areas, you know, I don't even know how you go about tackling porn with young boys and how to respect women. Oh, I'm terrified, you know, Marcy, having a daughter, I, that, that just knowing that I'm going to have to broach some of those subjects at some point. Yeah, it's not an easy subject to broach. I've said this before on the podcast as well, and I think obviously I don't have kids of my own, but I'm invested in a lot of kids' lives who I love, yeah. and, you know, and also in society. And I think as hard as they are, they're actually easier conversations to have with girls because we're talking about this is what you might need to do or should do to protect yourself. This is what might happen. And we want to keep you as safe as possible. The harder to have with boys, because it's like, this is what you might do. Who wants to think of that being their son or their nephew? No, I know. I feel like they're harder conversations. Don't be Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Which, oh my goodness, that you can actually buy Junior Ripper hat. What the fuck? Small Ripper hat, like official Ripper merch junior ripper top hats for your children for parties and i'm just it's one thing to dress as freddy krueger as a young kid who presumably hasn't seen the films but that's a fictional character and it's all a bit silly but to dress as a real life legend who killed lots of women is just bonkers i don't know why the legend of jack the ripper is baffling as well because you're right legend is is the word and obviously legends can be terrible as well as amazing but at the same time it's like jack oh jack like he's your pal he is it's so weird cheeky jack cheeky jack. jackie yeah i mean it's don't, just... don't be dissing spinal tap at me but yeah cheeky jack. <laughs> he's a naughty one <laughs> but yeah it's crazy but I, I i think it's that whole distance from something isn't it? it it becomes easier to look at difficult things if it's far away enough in time or far away enough in distance yeah any madeline mccann jokes would still raise us oh yeah no 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 not uh, too soon too soon too soon 
but you know, make a Fanny Adams joke or whatever, and the passage of time suddenly makes it all right somehow that this awful thing happened to a young girl yeah. many, many, many years ago. Yeah, I interviewed the author Caitlin Davis recently, and she's just done a brilliant book called Private Inquiries about female private detectives from history. Well, and they started coming up around the time of Jack the Ripper's reign of terror, basically, because Scotland yeah. Yard were a bit like, we are stumped. Maybe, yeah. maybe women, given that they're being killed, maybe they'd be better at finding him, which is, you know. Well, it's just bait, isn't it? It's just bait. Yeah. It's literally, it's just like, go, yeah. I mean, I understand why women would have wanted to take it into their own hands if they felt like they were being failed. But presumably that is just a lot of women going out late at night and strolling around alone and seeing what happens, right? Yeah, yeah. Are the women in your play taking stuff into their own hands? Yes. They start off, you know, very much like this conversation, like looking at it and just thinking, God, what what is the solution? They know they've suddenly gained a presence in 2023 for a reason. They don't they don't particularly know why. And it's only when they join forces with Jules, whose best mate Maz has just died on the street, that they realise that, you know, it's a different time and they've got different powers than they had back in 1888. What's been really enjoyable, because I did have, a, you know, I had a couple of versions where Jack was in the play before I realised I don't want Jack in my Jack the Ripper play at all. Yep. But there is a, a character called Christopher who is very, very big Soman-like ripperologist who does the walking tours, of which there are many examples yeah. out there. And he's he's the one that they choose to focus all their energies on and he undergoes a change. And um, so, yeah, it's about starting small, I suppose, you know, finding a target that you stand a chance with. Are we unleashing some uh, dark Sadie Hasler fantasies in this play? Do you know what? I've kept it quite clean for me. <laughs> there, it does get dark. Yeah, there's a real darkness there. And obviously I've worked with a composer. I've written songs, wrote some song lyrics, and he's written the most gorgeous music. And that's really like dark and compelling. And yeah, the music is absolutely gorgeous. The darkness kind of comes out in other ways. Okay. I think without spoiling it. No spoilers. <laughs> Go see for yourselves. Yeah. Killing Jack opens at Queen's Theatre in Hornchurch tomorrow and runs until November the 11th. For tickets and more info, have a look at queens-theatre.co.uk. Sadie, what else are you working on, buddy? I'm talking to some TV types Ball. about some interesting ideas possible one hour comedy drama yeah just got meetings in really and people that you know seeing the show reading the scripts who want to talk about future work that's exciting irons in fires irons in fires yeah and you know what i'm just really it's been such a year with spent with these women who are now totally in my heart forever i kind of want to stop looking at female violence for a bit and uh, yeah do you know what i mean yeah yeah, and just really fancy writing a book. Do it. Yeah. So I've had um, I had a chat with a book agent who uh, wanted me to explore a few ideas. Might just hold up like a nerd for a month and try and write a book. A month? <laughs> I'm just going to write a book in a month. All right, Asla, calm down. <laughs> Fucking hell, we've all had a drink. I mean, we know it's not going to happen. <laughs> just a nice contained little amount of time, you know. <laughs> Where can people find you on the socials if indeed you are on the socials and want to be found? I am at Sadie Hasler on Insta and Twitter slash X, which I very rarely go on. Quite right. Come chat.
Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film in which no one seems to understand what the word young means did we watch this week? (laughs) Why are they all so old? I think it's the panstick makeup, isn't it? He's a young man. He's a young man. That young man. Excuse me, young man. Help me, young man. Young, 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 young. I don't think a single person used it correctly in the entire film. But anyway... Agreed. What film are we talking about? Well, this week we watched Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's 1948 classic, The Red Shoes, a ballet within a ballet in a tale that's on the surface about the making of a prima ballerina. There is a whole lot of ballet in there. So too much. I wouldn't dare get my powder wet yet. But Hannah, I know ballet makes you cry. So first things first, are you okay? Yeah, I mean, the reason I had never watched this before was because I felt like there might be a tad too much ballet in it for me. Yeah, I went to the ballet. You know this story, but I went to the ballet. I was in the Czech Republic on a press trip and I got taken to like a really fancy venue to see a really fancy ballet. It was Giselle and it had like somebody world famous in it. And by the time that the first half ended, I was crying because I was so... (laughs) bored i hated it so much and i couldn't leave because i was on a press trip and i was also in the middle of a line and yeah it's just the fact that every time somebody does anything on stage everybody applauds so the whole thing gets held up for even longer you're like come on you wankers you're dragging this out they are beautiful (laughs) dancers but they're terrible actors and i can't watch it i just can't watch those sort of hammy pantomime faces that they all do yeah i hated it Sorry, ballet fans, not for me. So I told Gary the story of you hating ballet and hating it so hard that you cried. And he said, oh, had her mum taken her or something? And I said, no, she was a full-grown adult. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was way into my 30s. I hated it. I'm such a heathen, but I hated it. I don't think you're a heathen. It's very much an acquired taste. What about you? Do you like ballet, Mickey? No, not really, but we will come to that, I guess. But yeah, let's wet that powder. No, I find it really dull. It's it's so pretty. Like it is so pretty for two minutes and then I'm I'm full. I'm full of ballet, thank you. Yeah. So let's talk about the famous fairy tale The Red Shoes takes its name and thrust from, which comes from the really very fucking dark pen of Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah. Karen lovely leading lady there. Karen has a fancy pair of red shoes and she just wants to dance in them. So she dances and dances and dances and has a lovely old dancing time until she's tired. But the shoes, they are not tired. And so on, Karen dances. And even after she's had her feet amputated, the shoes and her cut off feet dance on. Karen finally gets peace by dying. It's a lot. It's a lot. Although still not as much as Powell and Pressburg as the Red Shoes, which wraps another tale, albeit one that echoes, around Hans Christian Andersen's horror story. The Red Shoes of film is visually sumptuous, blurry narrative and the lyrical, with a delightful sniff of German expressionism, which means not a rat's arse is given about stuff like how big a stage is, how props and sets actually work in a <laughs> theatre, or indeed how much cash people are likely to part with for 20 minutes of weird shit. <laughs> a bit like Winning Time and its glorious basketball scenes, Powell and Pressburger decided to use dancers that could act. I mean, Hannah might have issues with that. 
rather than actors who could dance. Oh, no, I think they're fine in this. I... And leading Lady Vicky Page is played by Moira Shearer, a trained ballerina. So to be fair, it's technically excellent weird shit. Is it a musical? No, although there is a lot of music in it. Is it a straight drama? No, because of that 17-minute ballet sequence, a fairy tale about a fairy tale which serves as the film's centrepiece and the crux of the story itself. And in fact, the question, what is it, is one that has kept critics and scholars busy since the film's release. Experimental, I think, would appear to be the answer. So how did it do? Well, The Red Shoes was initially released in the UK in September 1948 with not much fanfare and therefore to not much cop. It did much better in America where it premiered in New York on the 21st of October 1948 and by the end of the year had earned $2.2 million in US rentals. Contemporary critics weren't really sure what to make of it though, meaning a slew of mixed reviews. Most were nonplussed by that central 17-minute ballet sequence, complaining about a lack of realism, no shit, mates, which, as far as they were concerned, detracted from the physical aspects of the ballet. I mean, I don't know, if that's what you want, go see a ballet. Have these people not seen uh, the amazing pantomime in the middle of summer holiday? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I don't know why you brought that up. It's making me sad. (laughs) Obviously, it was four years before... That weird 20-minute section of singing in the rain as well that has no concept of how big yeah. a stage is or anything. Yeah. Anyway, none of this stopped the Red Shoes from getting five Oscar nods and pirouetting away with two of them, one for Brian Easdale's original score and the other for Hein Heckroth and Arthur Lawson's art direction. But its success at the time is nothing to how it has endured, with the Red Shoes now considered a cult classic one of the best films of Powell and Pressburger's partnership, and in 1999, it was voted the ninth greatest British film of all time by the British Film Institute. Hannah, had you seen The Red Shoes before? You hadn't, had you? No, I hadn't. I have seen other Powell and Pressburger stuff and liked it, but yeah, I mean, it was the ballet that put me off, I have to say. <laughs> this was my first ever Powell and Pressburger, and I was kind of excited oh, really? to see it because I've heard only wonderful things. Have you not seen Black Narcissus? I've not seen anything. So what else of their stuff have you seen? Um, well, I've seen The Life and Death, or is it The Life and something else of, of uh, Colonel, Colonel Blimp. Blimp? Yeah, and I've seen Black Narcissus. Did you like them? I really like Black Narcissus, yeah. And uh, do you know what? Blimp, so long ago, I can barely remember, to be honest. I think I did. But I was quite young, so I think I probably had a, oh, this is a bit overrated feeling about it. And I'd probably go back (laughs) now and look at me. Now, actually, there's more to it than I thought. Has that got Anton Walbrook in it as well? It's got the guy that that is basically like the 1940s Bill Murray. Yeah. (laughs) Did he not remind you of Bill Murray? No, not at all. Oh, my God. I couldn't stop thinking about Bill Murray when I watched it. He's so Bill Murray. Well, actually, I'd like to talk about Anton Walbrook in a bit anyway. So, yeah, maybe we'll come back to the Bill Murrayness. First of all, the plot. Uh, I'm going to be honest, for a lot of it, I had a fucking clue what was going on or why. But let's give this a shot. And unlike the film, try to keep it snappy. Moira Shearer is a beautiful English would-be ballet star, Vicky Page, who, on the premature retirement of her ballet company's leading lady, who has the gumption to get married, she gets her wish and becomes prima ballerina in a new production of The Red Shoes. The promotion comes courtesy of Boris Lermontov, a perfectly elegant Anton Walbrook, who apparently reminds Hannah of Bill Murray. 
the company's demanding director slash puppeteer, who is a strict disciplinarian with no time for anything that even whips of second rate. But, you know, Vicky wants to be a star. He wants to make a one. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, love. Love is the answer. Romance. Fucking things up, Hannah. Who would have thought it? As Vicky falls for the company's composer, Julian Craster, played by young man. Very, very young man. <laughs> Not at all young man. Marius Goring. Coming along and screwing up Lermontov's plans because we're in a place where it's seemingly impossible to be a brilliant dancer and have a husband. But surely her husband, who fell for Vicky partly because of her glorious talent and who also has big ambitions of his own, will understand that she must follow her dream of being a great dancer. Nah, love her art, Vicky. You're going to have to make uh-uh. a call, sweetheart. <laughs> What's that? You've chosen or death? Sure. I mean, why not pick that as an option? Once more back in her red shoes for the Red Shoes revival, with Lermontov and her husband demanding she choose, Vicky seems to realise her fate is the same as Hans Christian Andersen's doomed Karen, and either jumps by choice, jumps because the Red Shoes make her, or falls from a balcony and under an oncoming train living only long enough to ask her selfish dickhead husband to take off the red shoes. So, Hannah, let's start at the end. Uh, Was it the shoes that done it? Was it the shoes? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I read a bit about the Hans Christian Andersen story and there's an implication there in it that basically it's because she wanted to wear these red shoes to church. So she is a slut. Mm, She is, you know, a terrible wanton woman. So she deserved what was coming to her. So obviously the end is trying to replicate that in some way and say she only had herself to blame. But I think the blame actually lies with the shoes, doesn't it? I think that's the implication because apparently in the filming there was a bit of a balls up and she doesn't have the shoes on at some point when she's supposed to have them on. You never see her change into the shoes, basically. So they left it in so that it would very clearly imply that... It was the shoes that did it, apparently. Yeah, because she's about to go on stage and at the start of the Red Shoes, the ballet, and indeed the Red Shoes, the story, she doesn't have the red shoes. She gets them during it. Yeah. And yet she's already wearing them. So I guess the other thing is that Vicky is, oh, she's another woman trying to have it all, Hannah. When will we fucking learn? So I wondered how you felt about her, because I think Moira Shearer is actually brilliant in this. Yeah, within the realms of, you know, it still does have a little bit of the Hitchcockian sort of, oh my, about it. Yeah, I think she's, yeah, she's pretty good. She's pretty likeable. Well, she's certainly not unlikable. Which, given that quite a lot of the other characters in it are really unlikable, obviously, I would say, your sympathies go with her. And the thing is, she is actually doing it, right? She is having it all, if having it all is having her career and her husband. It's only after Lermontov finds out about Vicky and Julian that he goes ballistic and he tries to make her choose. She chooses love. And then ditto Julian appears to forget she's balanced dancing and being faithful and loving him before. So is it the shoes that done it? Yes, I agree with you. But is it also the men that done it, Hannah? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. You know, society. Who's to blame here? The patriarchy. Don't write in about this. We are going to say it pretty much every week. (laughs) And the timing is really interesting, actually, I think, because this came out in 1948, so just after the war, when women were now being encouraged to go back into the home. Sorry, I should state World War II because there's many wars going on. So just when women were being encouraged to go back into the home, having kept everything going while the men were fighting, 
So do you think this was meant as a cautionary tale or do you think it was just sort of timing? Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, I suppose you could almost certainly put forward an argument that it was, couldn't you, I think, uh, whether or not that was what was intended. I don't know. I mean, you could put forward an argument for anything. I'm sure we could just type it into AI and they could just, you know, chat GPT <laughs> could put forward a really good argument. I mean, yeah, do you? I think it works as a cautionary tale, but I don't know that Powell and Pressburger were like against women trying to have it all or, you know, have a career. It's interesting because it's also at a time where they weren't allowed to show any kind of intimacy on screen either. So even though they're married, you see that Julian and Vicky have separate beds. She's in a single bed. So that does that show them fall drifting apart already? Or does that just mean that they're not allowed to show it? And they do show her doing it. They show that she can have this career and love as well. It's the men and, you know, then the shoes that screw it up. I mean, I do wonder why she just doesn't go to another ballet company. But, you know. This is why we haven't made a cult masterpiece, Heather. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's in colour. Yes. Because part of me thinks it might have worked better as a black and white film because it's got that real sort of orangey, sort of yellowy look. Like, you know, when you go on holiday to some sort of godforsaken Norfolk slash North Wales, no offence to any of these places, you know, slash County Kerry or whatever town that doesn't get much tourism but still has a shop. That used to get loads of them in the yeah. 1970s that just had the same three jigsaws in the window for like 30 years and postcards that were like made in the 50s. Yeah. And they used to sometimes put this sort of yellowy stuff on the windows to stop oh. everything getting bleached out by the sun. Everything looks like you're in one of those shops. Like it's just got that vague tinge of yellow. I mean, they obviously had to do it because the shoes are red. So you had to know when she had the shoes on. So it sort of had to be in colour in a lot of ways, but... I actually really love the colours and the fact that it's, you're right, it's overly saturated. It's really full on. And I think it complements how full on the fantasy elements of the film are, the sort of dreamlike mm. nature of sections of the film. Some of it is very sort of, this is how a fucking ballet company works. But, you know, the dreamlike yeah. sequences, I think, are really enhanced by that oversaturated nature of the film. And a lot of it is filmed in France and therefore, it, you know, it looks kind of beautiful. The sea looks really blue. Mm. But at the same point, other bits are obviously filmed in studios. Like there's a bit where they're, um, when Julian and Vicky first start to get together and they're on a balcony and there's a tree next to them that looks like it's made out of polystyrene. <laughs> so bits of it look really good and bits of it look really, really crap. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that's kind of how I felt about the film, actually. I thought I might love it and I didn't love it. It's just too much ballet, isn't it? It's just too yeah, much ballet. It absolutely is. I mean, there are bits of it that, like I say, I think that you watch now sort of with just sort of the interest of it being however long ago it was. Like, what the fuck? When um, when the composer whose name escapes me... Julian Craster. Craster. Young Craster. Young Craster <laughs> goes to reclaim that letter that he sent. And the impresario is wearing this dressing gown that I've just never seen anything like it. <laughs> it's just the most incredible piece of clothing I've ever seen. It's insane. So I did enjoy that element of it, which I suppose in the 
40s all seemed perfectly normal because everybody wore clothes like that, apparently. Or did they, though? Because like I said, it was the end of World War Two. I imagine that, again, that kind of bright colours, this oversaturated, slightly yeah. bonkers costuming, slightly bonkers, very bonkers costuming, was it a reprieve from like rationing and all of that stuff that was going on. Yeah, that's a good point. And there are moments in it where I feel like it's funny, but I don't know yes. why it's funny. Like, uh, and like I said, that's why he reminds me of Bill Murray a bit, because he is like every occasion he feels like he's got a joke, but he's keeping it under <laughs> and he's just talking. But it's like every moment when he's speaking, it feels like he's got a dialogue going on in his head in which he is saying something really funny to himself, <laughs> which is what the vibe Bill Murray always gives me when he's playing in slightly more serious stuff. Hmm. When Vicky Page's mother first tries to introduce her and uh, at that party and he walks off and she just goes, attractive brute. That made me mess with his help. I also like it when he does meet Vicky and he says, oh, I've just been spared the horror of a dance audition. And she said, I am that horror. I love that she gets a really funny line yeah. as well. Actually, Lermontov yeah. was my favourite character in that I find him the most interesting and also he didn't do any dancing, so I warmed to him. And I think Anton Walbrook moves so seamlessly from charming, and you're right, that sort of Bill Murray charm and exacting to full-on megalomania. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose the implications that he fancies her himself. See, I, I don't, think, I don't, I don't think know. he does. No, I think it is, it is a menage a trois in a way, right, because it's this triangle. But I think he's all about the ballet. Yeah. I thought that for a bit, and then I was like, no, I think he's all about the ballet. Because when she dies at the end he says the red shoes will dance on which obviously harks back to Hans Christian Andersen's tale but also that's what's important to him yeah I mean I do get that but there's obviously something about him that's like I don't know he does strike you as the sort of man who probably shags a lot of women yeah he seems a bit Lothario I know what you mean yeah I like you say because it's constricted by all of this stuff that you can and can't show it just felt like an implication but I don't know what else I was interested about was and it could just be that I mean like I said I don't know that much about ballet and maybe ballet has changed but the male ballet dancers seem pretty I mean you say that they're ballet dancers so I, I believe they are but they seem pretty like eh. and maybe it wasn't until Nureyev and like Barishnikov turned up that suddenly male ballet dancers became like these really sort of hot you know muscular Sexy, I suppose, is the word. I, neither of them do it for me, but they both have this real image of being like these just unbelievably hot men. And they looked quite old and sort of really average in this. I like the fact, and you'll never, you, you'd be surprised to notice that I noticed something about makeup. I like the fact that all makeup is done one way, whether it's whatever dance you're in, <laughs> whatever character you're playing, whatever male or female, they only have the one set of this two stripes of makeup. And that's the only thing that they do in yes. this. Every character is sort of shocked. That's the look. Yeah. I think that, again, the the oversaturated nature of the colours really rings true with the theatre and how much you have to put on to be seen from the back and how unreal mm. that looks when you're up close. See also contouring and the Kardashians. <laughs> yeah. Big question for you now, Hannah. Big question. Is art worth dying for? Uh, well, that would depend what the death would achieve, I suppose. You know, if you're in a gulag in Russia and you're writing a book that may cause you to die but may change everyone's opinion of Russia, I would answer, yes, ballet dancing for a prick, maybe not so much. 
<laughs> now a slightly bigger question. Do you have a tiny green crown I can borrow? <laughs> What's well, so funny when he well, when he invites her to that place that he basically just wastes her time. Yeah. She gets all dressed up and he utterly wastes her time, but she has to go up something like about 500 steps <laughs> to get to him where he is. I would just be like, fuck that. Is art worth death? Art isn't even worth going up all of those fucking stairs for just to be <laughs> treated like a knobhead by a knobhead and then come back down again. You, mate, are art that is worth dying for. Oh, bless you. Attractive brute. <laughs> it's been said before. It'll be said again, I'm sure. The red shoes, rated or dated? I mean, it's clearly dated. Mm. I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, same. I wouldn't watch it again, I don't think. No. Or if I did, I would fast forward through all of the ballet. <laughs> Definitely. And all of the bits where old Julian and his pancake makeup face are in it. <laughs> I mean, the question is, is art worth dying for? Discuss. Is Julian worth dying for? No, 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 no. <laughs> I would like to know, what are we watching next? Is it me? Because I just blew in from the Windy City. <laughs> yeah, we're going to watch something that I loved 90% of the way through when I was a kid and then just the horror of the last 10%. But anyway, Calamity Jane. Whip, crack away, whip, crack away, whip, crack away. Standard issue for all women.